Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Pull the Pin with me, Alan Barrett. We always say it's business, brand and banter, but as regular listeners will have quickly figured out, it's mostly me just chatting shit with my mates. Uh, But today we are pulling the pin on inspiration. Now, what can I say about today's guest? Rumour has it. He's up for the lead role in the latest Inspector Gadget movie. <laughs> he's been banned from going through airport metal detectors. We know he loves a metal detector, but he's the most inspirational person you are ever going to meet. It's only Mark Ormrod. Hello, mate. Hello. Are you all right? <laughs> Very good, thanks. That was, you? A, that was the most unique but equally great introduction that I think I've ever had. I, I thought that, yeah. Most people are thinking, Inspe- who's Inspector Gadget? It was either that or Robocop. Um, yeah. To be fair, I was thinking, but we'll, we'll come on to Robocop later because you, you said something <laughs> last night and I thought that's like Robocop. Uh, but Mark, introduce yourself because mine was terrible as usual. So. Um, so my name, as you just said, is Mark Ormrod. I am a former Royal Marines commando who was injured back on Christmas Eve 2007, halfway through a tour of Afghanistan. Was discharged from the military July 1st, 2010, then spent... 10 years, fortunately for me, working for the Royal Marines Charity. So I got to stay in that community that I didn't really want to leave. And then February 2020, left there to set on a new adventure with no plan, no real direction. Just Sounds like of, us. Right. <laughs> you should work at Grenade. We've got no plan or direction. Yeah. Well, sometimes, <laughs> do you know what I mean? As, as much as I'm an advocate and, and a fan of, of setting goals and planning and sticking to the plan, sometimes it is nice to just do things without any idea and see where life takes you. Oh yeah, to roll yeah. with the punches. I mean, right. I was rolling with punches this morning when normally I would, um, I'd stay in bed, but uh, Mason, your 10 year old son who sat here with us, her guilted me into training at 6am. <laughs> so we tried to be quiet. No, 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 you were, you were good as gold. I was like, I could hear some stuff like very, very quiet clunking in the gym. And I thought, oh, he's doing it in his 10. I've yeah, got to, I've got yeah. to get up and do it. Got so that, I, mate, I did. It took me about an hour to build up into it, as you saw. <laughs> um, but I, I got there in the end. But yeah, it's just roll, rolling of the punches. Um, but just going back to sort of um, the injury, we were obviously chatting um, uh, last night, and uh, you'd obviously sort of not discussed what happened with um, your son in this case. Was there sort of a reason for that? So like when you were telling us last night what happened, it was kind of the first time he was hearing about it as well. Yeah. Was there a? Do you want to protect him from um, that sort of stuff, or not like talking about it, or? No, I mean, not really. I mean, I've, I've told the story God knows how many times over the last 10 years plus. So it's all over the internet and I'm on other podcasts and you know TV stuff and everything. So they're all, 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 I've got three kids, they're all going to hear it, some version of it at some point. But I mean, he's never really asked, you know, his sisters have never really asked. And it is quite graphic as, as yeah. you're going to hear in a minute. So... Is it difficult one to one with someone as well that like saying something over a um, a podcast where then it kind of feels a bit faceless? It's different sort of saying that story to to someone right there that obviously you know is part of your flesh and blood. And again, who wouldn't be here? Yeah. If if this had worked out, you know, very slightly differently, I think it's probably an age thing. You know, he's only ten, and this is going to be quite graphic, and you you want to protect them from that. But then, like I said, at the same time they're growing and they're growing quickly and they're on the internet and things like that all the time. They're going to hear it at some point, you know, and all, all my kids are, I think 
very grown up for their ages. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was going to say, and I, yeah, and, and I, I think that's one of the best compliments we could sort of give actually. So we're chatting about Mason like he's not here. Um, but uh, yeah, I was saying this morning and actually sort of, yeah, how um, I, I find it, I found it hard to kind of talk to him as a 10 year old because he doesn't strike me as like the average 10 year old. Apart from when he saw the M&M machine, he got very excited about that. <laughs> I'm 39 and I was the same. <laughs> no, yes, yeah, don't, don't we all? Yeah, they're, they're pretty past the sell by, I don't know, but by all means, hope yourself. Um, so, Go, going back to sort of, the, again, you know, what happened, do you mind sort of specifically just going one more time for us, just telling us then what happened on, I didn't realise it was Christmas Eve, actually. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Merry Christmas. Yeah. Um, what happened on that on that night? And give us a bit of the background to sort of that, you know, this, this particular incident. So I think I was six years into my career at this point. I joined February 2001 at 17 straight from school. Did Iraq when I was 19. Took a brief period out uh, after my minimum five-year service and retrained as a bodyguard. Did you always want to be a Royal Marine? Or in the army? So do you want to, should we go back and start at the beginning? Should we go right back? Because before you start, sorry, I did this a lot. Apologies for interrupting. I always wanted to be a Royal Marine okay. when I was 12, because I used to watch them train down at, yeah, at Poole yeah. um, when I was at my mum and dad's caravan. And uh, I, that was one of my earliest memories, actually, wanting okay. to be a Royal Marine. As we now know as well, I'm too lethal. Obviously, yeah. No, I've, I've seen you in the gym. I've oh, yeah, yeah, too hard. Yeah, I mean, it was, we had to turn the smoke detectors off. Um, <laughs> obviously, it's pretty powerful stuff. So, yeah, I was never going to get in because it wouldn't be fair on all the rest of you. That's it. Um, but, yeah, sorry. So, take us back. So, where, where I grew up in Plymouth, um, all my friends that I went to school with and hung around with outside of school were two or three years older than I was. So, they all left school before I did, started their careers before I did. And when I got to about 15... And I knew I had my GCSEs in the horizon and then I had to make a decision. Do I go to college, go to university, or do I start a career? And I, and I started looking around at my friends and I had one who was in the tank regiment in Germany, one was in the Navy, one was in training for the Royal Marines and their lives looked appealing to me. You know, and, and also we talked about this last night, or I think it was this morning, you know, when we grew up, it's all Commando, Predator, Rambo, and all these films you grew up on VHS cassettes. And, you know, as a young lad, you want to, you think you are that, you know, and you want to be that. And I saw my friends in the military and I was having this kind of period of my life trying to make a decision. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do that. Because they were always coming back from these places where they were, they were based or deployed. And they seemed to have money in the bank, new cars. They were going out partying on the weekend. They were telling me all these stories about, you know, we did this eight mile run and we shot this gun and I drove a tank and I'm like, I can see myself doing that. Do you know yeah, what I mean? yeah, yeah. And you see in the world for free. I think it's a fantastic um, opportunity for the, you know, for the right people at the right time. Right. Um, uh, you know, yeah, for that reason, you, you know, you, you, it's a, if personally, if that were me, you know, I'm not a massive fan of education. If it was that, I kind of go into uni, uni I'd, I'd, I'd yeah. just, just a no brainer for me. I'd have done that in a heartbeat. But in my gut, it felt the right decision as well. You know, I couldn't ever see myself in a suit. I didn't see myself. I wasn't an academic. I'm not an academic. I couldn't see myself going to uni. And I had just kind of discovered at like 13, 14, fitness and, and how beneficial it was to my life. And, and I liked it. So I thought, well, you're going to have an active life in the military. Let's do what your friends are doing. So I didn't actually know. And I, I, I was born in Plymouth and raised in Plymouth. And I didn't know who the Royal Marines were. And their headquarters were in Plymouth. At and Limston, 4-2 yeah. Commander was in Plymouth. And Limston's 45 minutes away. But I I just thought, I think growing up watching those movies, if you want to be a soldier and wear a camouflage and you know learn how to shoot and take out bad guys, you join the army. So I went down to the career centre when I was 15 and a half. And I spoke to the army recruiter, my friend from the tank regiment that took me down there. 
and I took all the paperwork back. And because of my age, I had to get permission. I had to get signatures. So when I did, my, my dad said to me, do you know you've got an uncle who's a Royal Marine? I'm like, no, I don't even know who they are. So we arranged a trip one weekend. They only lived between Exeter and Plymouth. So it was like a 25-minute drive. And I went and saw my uncle, John. And I walked in his house and he had retired from the Marines at this point. And he lived on like a farm and he had this horse and this big Alsatian dog. And there's this big like, you know, the kind of converted barn door, front door of the house, big base thing. And I remember walking in there and he had this huge framed citation on the wall with a Royal Marines officer's sword with a green beret on the end of it. And I'm like, that's the first thing I saw. And I'm like, wow, you know, who, who are these people? And he sat me down and he talked to me about the Royal Marines. And he told me why they'd be different from the army, what he had done in his career, what I could expect to do if I was successful. And then I went back the Monday to the career center. I spoke to the Royal Marines recruiter. And he, I remember he, this is about the time when TV video combis were like a big thing. And I remember sitting there when he put the VHS in and I watched this video and I'm like, damn, like the, these were in my mind what I was watching Arnie doing and, and Stallone doing in these movies, like jumping out of helicopters, going through the jungle, they're up to their chest in water, patrolling, you know, through Brunei and, the and they had amazing promotional videos they as were, well. The, the best was that the, the 99.99% need not apply I video it was before that. Okay, this no, is so, 1998, 1999, I think, that I did this. So, uh, weirdly, with that recruitment video, because uh, we had the idea for this years later with, with Grenade, uh, that campaign for the Marines was actually very unsuccessful. I know. Because it, it showed, again, all this very difficult stuff that you guys do. And, you know, it said at the end, you know, 99.99% need not apply. So they didn't. I know. I, I know. I, you're <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And yeah, which is, which is why now I think it's a, it's a state of mind. Yeah. They've tried to flip it so it's a bit more positive. Mm -hmm. But it's amazing that psychology of actually this is really difficult so mm. if you're not sort of pretty tough don't bother and people are like oh yeah i won't then so he's but just i love that but that's what did it for me i looked at these people and, and I, even now thinking i'm getting goosebumps and i thought that's what i can see myself doing pushing myself as hard as i can physically and mentally to be like them and you know i saw this green beret and when you think about it right it's a piece of cloth right but it just became this symbol, symbol for yeah. me and this strength, and, and I would do whatever it took to earn one and, and put one on my head. And the internet was, I think, just getting phased in around this time, and you had the old dial connection with their... <laughs> and we, still, remember, we still use that. <laughs> I remember getting on there all the time, doing research, trying to see what the Royal Marines were doing at that time in the world, where they were, more about the training, more about the history, and it just became like an obsession. And this is all post the Falklands as well, wouldn't it? So what year would this have been? This be sort of... This is 99. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, so... Um, and, and from that minute, that was me set. That's all I wanted. Nothing else mattered. So I went and I applied and I went back to school and I did my exams. And then I eventually got invited to do... I don't think they do it anymore. It's called a Potential Royal Marines course, which is three days of just getting smashed, where... You as an individual. Not drinking, I assume. No, 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 yeah. no. Plenty of water. <laughs> so I'm up for that. That's about it. Um, and it's an opportunity for, for people to see, you know, get a taste of it and go, is this for me? And also for the recruiting team to go, is he ready yet? Yes or no, go do this. So I went and did that, I think when I was 16 and I managed to pass it first time. And they give you a paper handout with a training program on it. Again, nothing digital, no mobile phones or anything were around then. And you go home 
and you start under your own steam, you know, under your own discipline, going through this training program, which gradually builds you up until they invite you to come and start training. And that's all I did. Like, you know, you start in like trainers with no weight and you build up to a bit of weight and you put your boots on and they give you this kit list and they start giving you things to, to look at, like the history of the Royal Marines and like I say, current affairs and that kind of stuff. And it's all I did. And I just waited. I'd finished school. You know, I did my exams. Did I think I did pretty well. I got nine A to C, a couple of A's, a couple of B's, some C's and one D. So okay. I could have gone to college. Yeah. Could have gone potentially to university. But I was on that trajectory and nothing in my mind was going to, was going to steer me off it. So I just trained and trained and researched and trained some more and researched some more until eventually I got the letter saying, we'd like to invite you to start recruit training February, 2001. So got myself prepped, got all the, the bits of kit I needed, got on the train. And the, the funny thing is like where I grew up, my bedroom, I could lie on my bed, look out my window and you can see the train station platform in Plymouth. And you could always hear the tannoy calling the trains in. And then all of a sudden, I found myself on the platform looking at my bedroom window, shit in my pants with this big bag. I couldn't fit my boots in, so I tied the laces together, put them over the bag, looking like a complete moron about to get on this train. And it was only a 45-minute train journey to Limston. But in my mind, as a 17-year-old, I was going to the other side of the world. Yeah. And I got on that train and I got there and I was one of 64 men, the second youngest in my, in my troop. And it was just baptism by fire. Like the, the 32 weeks, the training. So when I did, program. I think it was 30. And then later on with Iraq and Afghan, they introduced another two weeks, which I think was because they had more weapon systems to learn because mm -hmm. they were going literally from training straight on deployments. But I joined February, 2001 finished my training. I was, I was what we call an original. So I managed to pass everything first time. I never got injured, fortunately. and went from day one to pass out in one hit. Because injuries are high as well, aren't they, in terms of that, le that level of training? I think yeah. I'm right in saying, I think it's still the longest military training program, I think, in the world. It's the longest and hardest regular forces, yeah. arguably, you know, the powers and whatever, they'll, they'll debate that. But, yeah. um, but they're not here, so that's fine. No, we'll just, we'll just lag them off. But apart um, from special forces, yeah, it is. And, and I think uh, I think it was actually at Matt Crouch, a friend of mine, you know, who's a bootneck. I think he said to me that something like at the end of that training program, I think that uh, the guys have got the fitness of an international athlete. Olympic athlete, yeah. 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 Um, and something like 50% of them have had like mini heart attacks yeah, crazy. Um, as well, just in terms of the level of stress. So just gives people an idea as to how hard it is. And of course, you know, they want to weed people out because the dropout rate is mm -hmm. pretty high, both for injury and, you know, uh, lack of willpower to continue yeah. um, as well. So, um, sailed through, original. I wouldn't what? say I sailed through. You know I mean, there were 64 of us that started. At the end, there were 16 originals. Mm. There were about 25 in the troop as a total, but only 16 of us made it from day one to the end. And it's all designed to be progressive, right? There's no way I would have turned up on day one and been able to do a 30-mile march across Dartmoor and, and all the other commando tests on day one, but you progressively build up. And I get a lot of people contacting me now asking me for advice, which I don't feel I'm qualified to give. I never had the privilege of training anyone as a Marine. But what I'll always say to them is, yes, you have to be fit. They'll tell you what to do. Do what they say to the letter. But you need to get comfortable being wet, yeah. cold, tired, food deprived, sleep deprived. You need to try and find some way to cultivate a sense of humor when all the chips are down and things are shit and you just hate life. 
you need to think of a way not only for you to smile and laugh, but to make the people around you smile and laugh about how crap the situation is. You know, cheerfulness in the face of adversity is huge. It's one of our, our values. And those are the things that I think are often overlooked. You know, and that's where I saw a lot of people. Because I'm not the fittest person in the world, and I never was. If we ever went out for like a run in, as part of training, if there were 60 of us, I'll be in the last 50 to 60 mm-hmm. every single time. I'll be throwing up as I'm running. I'll be the one with snot coming down his face. But I would never quit. But then you'd see those guys... It's like going running with James. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then you'd see those guys that were super fit, but when they were wet for three days in a row, they'd break. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. I, I find this really interesting because... I'd imagine, yeah, it you know, fitness obviously is critical, but when you've slept and you've got a belly full of food, yeah, it's when, very when different. When you're comfortable, to, yeah, it's easy to be fit, but it's, it's a, the mental fitness. It's like you've got blisters on your feet, you haven't eaten properly, you know, you're exhausted, and they, they always do this trick, like when you go on these big marches, like two, three, four, five in the morning, the sun's coming up, you've been going eleven miles with a stupid weight on your back. Oh, the vehicle's just around the corner, lads. Then you get the, one of the training team go. Oh, we've had a phone call. The vehicle's broken down. We've got to do another mile. And if you're switched on, you know that they're just playing games and they want to see who's going to quit. Yeah. And some people will. They'll throw a tantrum. They'll take their bargain off. Go, right, I'm done. I'm out. And that's it. They're done. Yeah. But if you can just be like, All right, this is one of the games that they want to play with me. This is a mind game. Just keep pushing. I guarantee the vehicle's around the corner. Nine times out of 10 it is. Mm. You know, but you've got to have that mental toughness as well. Like when the chips are down and you really want to just jack it all in to go, I'm going to push on a little further. And that's one of the main things that I, I think someone told me this when I was in training because it's always stuck with me from training. Someone must have told me this, right? They said, when your mind is screaming at you and you feel that you're going to quit and your body hurts and everything in your being is telling you to stop, you're about 40% of the way done. There's still 60% left, mm-hmm. but you've just got to overcome that voice in your head saying, you've got blisters, your feet are bleeding, your back hurts, you've got chafing, you know, you haven't eaten for a day. You've got to overcome that voice and go, I'm only 40% of the way to go in. Just keep on pushing. I can relate to that because I got, you should still some mark, I've got quite a nasty paper cut. Oh no. That, uh, yeah, that I, that I, I got I got last week. And it's I, brutal, I, man. I, I, I powered, I, <laughs> but I you keep pushing on, I thought though. about you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I powered through. So just, just while we're sharing. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, you know, joking aside, that sort of, um, that mental resilience. Mm. And again, that will obviously have played a massive part in obviously what's uh, gone on to happen, um, you know, with you sort of subsequently as well. Mm. Um, but then when you get handed that green beret with that, you know, is that one of the, would that be sort of a, a pinnacle <laughs> moment of, you know, of, of, of your life? Because people sort of say he's getting handed that beret for the first time. So when you finish the 30 miler and you get handed it, yeah, it's it's amazing because you're you've done the last test physically, right? And and you, this is the pinnacle of it. You're exhausted, and they'll hand it to you in a little mini ceremony when you're completely broken. But prior to that, when you're you know trying it on and getting it shaped and getting it ready for that ceremony, some bloke just throws it at you in a store. He's like, "Yeah, mate, what size are you? 59, 60? Uh-huh. And, and you're like. I thought this was going to descend from the heavens in a beam of light and angels were going to be playing harps yeah, around me. A marching band's yeah, going to go past. comfortably sit on my head and I was going to feel like I, I got a power up and some guy just threw it at me in a store. I was like, here you go, mate. And I'm like, brilliant. That's sometimes the problem as well of working so hard towards that one single focused point in mm. time is you, you build up this giant picture. Yeah. And again, it's amazing achievement, but then when you get there and it's a bit, oh, 
because life goes on. Mm. <laughs> so you sort of then have to get kind of, uh, you know, beyond that. Yeah. Um, so you get the beret and then um, at what point do you find out where you're going to go? Because again, if that was a your 45 minute tra- train journey was like the other side of the world, how did it feel to get sent to the other side of the world? So this is the thing, right? So I, I turned 18, uh, like three quarters away through my training. And we started February 2001 and we finished October. So four weeks before we finish, what did we see on TV? Yeah, 9-11. Yeah. So we're like, we're all, and when you're young, right, you're dumb. So we're all like, I remember being in the, the cafe, like the diner on camp, and we all watched it and everyone looks around and there's a bit of a silence and everyone's like, yeah, like almost like that Jarhead movie. Let's go, let's go. And you're like, you don't understand what it is you're getting excited about, but you think because you've been through this training and they've beaten into you how great you're going to be. That, you know, this is it's a game almost. You don't actually realise the reality of it. So we're all excited and pumped up and we can't wait. And then 2002, so I passed that October 2001, uh, floated around for a little bit. January 2002, I was trained to go to Afghanistan on Operation Jakana. Didn't end up going. Was really annoyed because, again, you, you're young and you're keen and you're eager and you want to see if you can do this. And it kind of feels like a game. But then 2003 came around for Iraq. So I was on, I went on Operation Telic 1. I was involved in that initial push over the Kuwaiti-Iraqi border into Iraq. I uh, did three and a half months there. Came back from there and was a little bit, like, deflated. Because I, I didn't fire a single round at all in three and a half. I didn't see any action. And I was like, hang on, I'm a Royal Marine. I've trained to be one of the most elite soldiers on the planet I'm at war. I was 19 at the time. I didn't do anything. And I'm like, so obviously a lot of our guys did. Mm. I never found myself. And I even volunteered to be force protection for a big army field hospital to look after the ambulances thinking I'm going to be able to see some stuff here. Nothing. So I came back. I'm like, okay, is that it? Like, I've ticked that box. I've got a green beret. I've been to war. I'm only 19. I did a couple of Norway deployments between 2002 and three as well. And I'm kind of thinking, well, what am I going to do now for the next 20 years? You know, is, I've experienced that. Most people, and you look back and you're actually quite fortunate to experience that early on. Some people can go like 15 years and never deploy anywhere. You know, I just was in the right place at the right time, if you want to put it that way. And I was like, well, what am I going to do now? Now, my my eldest daughter, Kezia, was, was due to be born in January 2006. So I think this was about 2004 or five. I decided I'm going to put my notice in and leave. You know, I'll do my minimum five years. Like mm-hmm. I said, I've got the Green Beret. I've been to war. I've ticked some boxes. I'll go off and do something else. I think I was about 22 at the time. So young enough to Still start young, career. Yeah. And so I left. You know, you obviously plan. I got I bought a, a house, my first property. Plan to start a new career, be there for my family, provide some stability. Things didn't work out, you know, like they often don't. And I ended up, I retrained as a bodyguard in that period, thinking I was going to, go out and protect celebrities and this big glamorous lifestyle, which I very quickly found out wasn't the case in that world. And was working as a nightclub doorman to try and earn some money to get some good close protection work. And it was around about the time that, well, it was around the time that the SIA were regulating the industry. So there was a lot of eyes on security, especially within the nightclub world, because they were trying to get rid of all the bullies and the thugs from the 90s and the 80s. So the police would come down quite hard on people and I'm I am the last thing from a bully I was I was bullied at school it was horrible and I I, I hate it but 
I just found myself in trouble all the time. And, and this sounds like an exaggeration, but someone could come up to me while I was working on a nightclub. They could physically, uh, verbally abuse me, you know, spit at me and then hit me and I would get in trouble. And I'm like, I don't understand what's going on here. It was really, and I was sleeping on a friend's sofa at the time. I had nowhere to live. And I was like, I don't know what's going on here. I've left the Marines and it seems like this safety net's been taken off me. And now everyone's just trying to take me down and I'm always in trouble. And, and I'm not a, I'm not an angry person. I'm not a violent person. I don't go looking for trouble, but I just seem to always be in it. Do you feel like it's you versus the world when you leave the it military? Was the, it was like yeah. someone hit a switch, right, on my head. With, and I felt like I had a sign above my head saying, he's not a Marine anymore, go take him down. And the safety of the, the military felt like it had gone. And it all came to a bit of a point where I was working at this gay bar and I was on the front door. And, back, you know, back then I used to lift a lot of weights. I was about 16 stone, tight T-shirts. I, I had blonde highlights in my hair. I used to use sunbeds and I was... You oh, know, I bet I thought, you were beautiful. I was, I thought I was. <laughs> and so there was, the, there was these travellers that were out and they were celebrating, they were wetting a baby's head. And this guy comes out and, and he's very polite to me. He just had like denim shorts on, no t-shirt. And we're chatting. And then he just got really aggressive and rude with me. And I'm cool with that. I'm like, all right, mate, you know, whatever. Enjoy the rest of your night. You can't come in anymore. And then he started being abusive to some of these women that were waiting for a taxi. And anyway, it ended up in a bit of a fight and it got quite bad. And, and I got arrested for it. And I was looking at, some prison time. Um, again, you know, the guy had quite a list of injuries, but I know from my experience of working that world that he was on some, he wasn't just drinking that night. That's yeah, what I'm okay. trying to say. That's why the, the fight went the way it did and it carried on and carried on and carried on. And uh, I was looking at going to do a little bit of time in prison for it. So I panicked and I thought, what's going on here? I'm living on a sofa. I'm earning cash in hand out of an envelope to survive I, you know lost my property lost my daughter what am I going to do and I was like right I'm going back to the marines that was safe I was around great people I felt at home there I felt comfortable there I was good at my job I'm going to go back to that and so I went down to career center spoke to the recruiter told him my story I'd only been a civilian for 11 months so there's no need to do all that training again you mm -hmm. just did a shooting test fitness test uh like a they throw you in a CS chamber and you've got to do your drills and then within four weeks, I was back in, you know, early 2007, back in. And at this point, Iraq was still going on, but Afghanistan had become the focus now. And I felt that I needed to get away, you know, and, and just reprioritize my life, reassess my life, and then come back with some gold and take my life in a better direction. So I joined 40 Commando in Taunton, who were next on the rotation to go out to Afghanistan. Went there and straight away got involved in the training the training was very different to Iraq. So I knew the deployment was going to be very different. Like I said, I didn't do anything in Iraq, but this, I knew that it was going to be the complete opposite of it. Yeah, probably 2007, 2008 was like the absolute, probably the, the, the peak of it, I guess, right. wasn't it? Of the all the hostilities and, and certainly the, uh, the, the, you know, the injuries and that, the, um, yeah. the, that went on over there. Um, but yeah, so I guess, you know, you got the action you didn't get the first time around. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I joined my unit early 2007, straight into training, deployed September 7th, 2007, did three months in Helmand. And then Christmas Eve, we were on a, on a routine foot patrol. And I was like maybe three days from going on R&R &R for two weeks. And I was second in command of a section. And we were just finishing up the patrol. 
and our task and we were on high ground and we had to give overwatch for this other section to protect them while they went back into the camp. Um, and then when they got behind the perimeter wall, they'd return the favor. It's just, you know, basic drills that you do. And uh, the section commander started putting his half of the section where he needed them. I jumped in this like shallow little bowl up on this high feature and the lads all started taking their fire positions. And when they were happy and, and I was happy, I started walking over towards my position to get down on my stomach and, and take a fire position. And as I put my right knee on the floor, I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device, which instantly took off both my legs above the knee and my right arm above the elbow. And that was instantaneous where that happened. I mean, were you conscious? Do you remember what mm -hmm. happened? What What was the first thing you remember immediately as that happened and straight after? So if you imagine the terrain in Afghanistan, it's very sandy, very dusty. So this device exploded and there was a huge dust cloud created. So I was temporarily blinded. I had no clue what I'd done because I wasn't in any pain. So my instinct was we're under attack. Someone's fired a rocket or a mortar on our position. So what I need to do is ID where that's came from and neutralize the threat. Now where I was, I knew about 600 meters behind me on the ground beneath, there was a small rectangular forestry block of, of trees and everything else around it was like flat mud fields. So in all that chaos, I can't see anything. My adrenaline spiked. I'm like, that's where the attack must have came from. If you've got any sense, you're going to be hidden mm -hmm. in those trees, fire and, you know, shoot and scoot. So in my mind, I'm like, right, turn around, Mark. Turn around, crawl to the lip of this bow. ID the enemy, start shooting. When the lads see that I've ID'd them, they'll all start shooting and we can get out of here. About four times after, in my mind, I'm going, turn around, turn around, Mark. Turn around, ID the enemy. I, couldn't, I still couldn't see anything because of the dust cloud. I just realized that my body wasn't moving. You know, even though I couldn't see anything, I, I just, you just know, don't you? Like mm -hmm. you're trying to turn around, you know what that feels like, but this felt different. So I just thought, okay, well, wait, wait till the dust cloud settles, look around, assess the situation, make sure everyone's okay, and then make some decisions. So how many seconds with this? Because I'm waiting for something to kick in. Is this like five like seconds, 20 three, seconds? Three to five, okay, if right. that. But when, when, you, when you're in a traumatic situation like that and your adrenaline spikes, everything outside you is like slow motion. Mm -hmm. Everything inside is like a thousand mile an hour. So I'm waiting for this dust cloud to settle. And it gets to about chest height and I can see and I'm looking around. I can't see any of my friends, any, any lads in my section. They'd all been blasted out the area. So I'm like, right, carry on waiting. Carry on waiting, you know, for this dust cloud to completely sell and figure stuff out and then start making some fast decisions. And it got to the ground, you know, about six inches from the ground, hit the floor, disappeared. And then I like looked down to where my legs should have been. And they had both been completely ripped off from the knees down. Now, like I said, it's a very surreal experience that there was no pain, just like my experience of it was extreme discomfort, like really intense pins and needles throbbing mm -hmm. in both my legs. It felt like a dream. You know, I'm sat there looking at it thinking, I remember sitting there going, what am I looking at? Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. And my brain couldn't comprehend it or process it. So I just, again, this is like a second, maybe two seconds. I'm sat there staring and, you know, there's, there's blood and claret and everything coming out, and but there's no pain. And I just couldn't take it in. And then I instantly started thinking about the rest of my section. So I snapped out of it, looked around to see if I could find anyone. 
And as I looked over my right shoulder, I saw Sean, who was the section commander. And Sean had been through training with me back in 2001, so I'd known him for a long time. And I looked at his face and, you know, the colour had drained out of his face. There was clearly a look of shock in his in his eyes, which while I'm trying to process everything that's going on, I'm like, okay, why is he looking at that? What's he looking at? He's looking at me. That's not real. So why does he look shocked? Maybe it is real. And I just, I went to look back to my legs to kind of make sure that what I saw was real. I know this sounds bizarre, but it feels like you're in a dream. Uh, yeah, I can imagine because I don't know if you did at any point think, did you think I'm dead or? No, no, never. But I, I went to look back to my legs and as I got to like the three o'clock position, I was scanning the floor of my eyes. I looked and saw my right arm, which was, it was still attached to my body, but from my bicep to my wrist, it had been just torn open and all the bones were shattered. And my hand was like, my hand was in relatively good order. And I, and I remember picking it up and holding it in front of my face and kind of looking at it, I moved it a little bit, dropped it in the sand and then just, just let out this massive like scream as I kind of understood what had gone on. I thought mm -hmm. we're not under attack now. I'm the guy that stood on the IED and it all started, everything just hit me at once. And I'm like, right now we need to figure out what we're going to do because as bizarre as it sounds, we are trained in that situation. I knew the rest of my section, we've been trained not to come running in to help me because of the risk you, you pose of setting off other devices. And there were seven other ones in the area when, when the area was cleared. So I knew no one was going to get to me quickly. This little bowl that we had gotten is now, because I read the report that the Americans did, 12 feet deep by 15 feet around. I've got seven other devices around me and we're on a high feature and I'm bleeding out. And I'm like, this is going to be the most difficult evacuation that anyone's probably ever done in their life. But as as much as I knew that, I knew I was going to be all right. I, I knew that they would do, those other seven men would do whatever it took to get me out of there. There's no way they'd leave me. There's no way they'd freeze. There's no way they'd let fear take over them. They would do whatever was necessary, you know, without being too risky to make sure that I was all right. And... You know, I, I say this all the time, every time I tell this story, the way they reacted was flawless. Like you, you'll, you'll fuck this up nine times out of 10 when you're drilling it and you're mm. training it. But when you need to do it, everything was seamless. Like one guy straight on the radio calling in the evacuation. Another guy, 19 years old, is on his belly with a bayonet out, prodding the ground, marking a safe route from the medic gets to me. The other guys are coordinating all around defense. Everything was like perfect. And because of that, the medic got to me very, very quickly. He climbed up this high feature, jumped in this 12-foot crater, started putting tourniquets on my leg. And one of the things the medics are trained to do is to keep the casualty in a situation like mine conscious and mm -hmm. keep him fighting. So he asked me to do the tourniquet up my arm. And, you know, I'm just floating in and out of consciousness yeah. and groaning. So I, I try to, to do this thing up and he gets me to a situation where he deems me fit to get out of that crater and get down to the vehicle that was waiting and he pulls out this stretcher which is like a like a tablecloth with handles because of the terrain that you couldn't use like a rigid stretcher and he put his hands into my armpits and he dragged me over to the stretcher and that was the first time I felt any pain and it was what I imagined it would feel like if you put a screwdriver under your kneecap and just started ratcheting down on it and so I asked him uh I was going to say very politely, but I kind of told him quite firmly to put me down. 
and I looked down to where the pain had came from. And coming out of my right thigh was like, almost like a little piece of rope snaking in the ground with blood and sand and, and dirt on it. And it went into my boot. And I don't know why, but I just, I just picked this boot up and turned it around and looked in it and you know, my foot was still in there. I guess this was like a nerve or a tendon and where he dragged me, the weight of the foot and boot had left, you know, caused this thing to stretch what caused the pain. So we had to pick my foot up and put it on my stomach. He put me on the stretcher. I had my eyes closed the entire time. He then took me down off this high feature, put me in the back of a vehicle and the guy driving just nailed the accelerator, right? And, and these are not, you know, you think we've got potholes in this country, you should try it on an Afghan dirt road. It's just, you're bouncing around, my head's smashing off the side. You know, I'm screaming at the driver because I'm already in pieces and he's throwing me all over. And how far did you have to go? How far was he driving it, you? We were right outside the camp. It was yeah. probably, it was less than 400 metres. But towards the the end of that journey, getting back into camp, there was an incline. And like I said, the ground is quite loose footing. So you had to be quite aggressive sometimes when you're driving with the, with your accelerating and your steering. So he's going up this incline towards the front gate and he nails the accelerator and, and banks over, I think to the left it was, to try and get up this particularly difficult bit of terrain. And the medic fell out the back. Now, I'm on the come up now on the morphine. So I've zero pain, everything's hilarious and, and everything's wonderful because I've got so much morphine in my system. So I see this guy roll out the back and I'm like, you know, thinking it's quite funny until I went out after him. And then... So you fell out the back of the ambulance, basically. Not, not quite. So it wasn't an ambulance. It was like a, it was a, called a super cat. Okay, uh, yeah, almost yeah. like an ATV moon buggy thing. As the bottom of my back hit the tailgate, the driver swung around, reached out and just grabbed whatever he could to hold me in. And he ended up grabbing my femur bone that was coming out of my right leg. Now he left the medic um, because the other section of men that we were with, that we were given cover for, they were at the bottom of the hill. So he was safe. He had eight heavily armed men down there to protect him. They carried on driving, got through the front gate, all the way through camp. And the last thing I can remember is this Chinook landing and the sandstorm that's created from the propeller blades, the heat of the exhaust, and then like the mechanical sound of a tailgate dropping. And then I blacked out, which is the last thing I remember. And having met the entire medical team since then uh, was the point where they told me I was clinically classed as dead. Um, now, I have met every single person on that flight since that day. And this, this next part is what they told me happened, right? So I pass out. They landed Chinook. They put me on the back. There was another guy injured in the blast and he got shrapnel in his tricep and his back. And the way that casualties are prioritised in that situation is, is if you've got a guy that's dead and a guy that's dying, as harsh as it sounds, you leave the dead guy because you don't mm. want two dead guys. Yeah. So they felt me for a pulse. I didn't have one. They couldn't get any intravenous lines into me because all my veins had collapsed because of the blood loss. And when they put an oxygen mask on me, they said it should have steamed up to show that I was breathing, but it didn't. So they put me in a corner. I'm like, this guy's dead. Everyone focus on this other guy. Then a medic walked past me to get some equipment to go back and work on Stu, the other casualty. And he said that my eyes started fluttering, which meant my heart was beating. So he alerted some of the other medics. They came over to work on me. And this is, this is crazy. Like three days before this incident, whoever is in charge of the 
military medical world had given the green light for this new technique to be used, where if you can't get intravenous lines into somebody's veins, you drill into their tibia and their fibula and you administer it that way, which is brilliant. Problem being, I no longer had any tibias or fibulas because they'd been ripped off by the landmine. So these medics now, they think they've got this glimmer of hope, then they're like, he doesn't have what we need. What are we going to do? So they made some very brave and courageous decisions and they decided to try drilling into my hip bone so one went in through the front one went in through the back they put the line in it didn't bite they said that the skin wasn't tight enough so they went back they tightened the skin they went in again the second time that they it bit and it started administering fluids into my system and they said within three minutes that i was awake and responsive and coherently answering their questions and the first thing I said when I came round was that my ass hurt, which apparently was a positive sign of mass amounts of morphine. So they all like, they're elated because they know I'm going to be okay now because I said that. And they flew me back to Camp Bastion. They took me to the field hospital there. The surgeons had a look at the damage that was caused to my three limbs. And then, you know, it's not, these are not surgical amputations. They're very messy because they're traumatic. So they had made the decision to amputate cleanly above both my knees and my right elbow, bandaged me up, stabilised me, and then when they thought I was ready, put me on a plane, flew me back home uh, to Selyuk Hospital in Birmingham, where I arrived at about four o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day. And, and what's also bizarre about this, in terms of uh, there's some of these strange quirks of fate, we realised last night that Tom, who's worked at Grenade for a number of years, his wife yeah. was actually one of those nurses, yeah. Eve. So she sends a love. By the way, she messaged yeah. me this morning. She said, awesome. she said, it's incredible what you've done since you left Selly Oak. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, what are the chances, again, of sort of, yeah, having another link into that person yeah, again who absolutely. looked after you for many months? Um, so um, I can't much worse, actually, sort of, yeah, being in hospital, being looked after by Eve. <laughs> um, but uh, she wants to come and say hello this morning, by the way. She couldn't get here, but she did want to come and say hello. Um, but, uh, yeah, so you wake up in Celio. And, I mean, are then are you sort of, when you're okay, you're going to survive. But, obviously, you know, say it's life-changing injuries is a ridiculous understatement. You know, are you, how do you feel? Are you angry, bitter, just? So uh, I woke up. I think it was three days later. I was mortified up. about my pay, paper cut. So, oh, mate. I, you've, you, I, I, I admit you've got me. You've got your story. You got me trumped. You've got. Well, you um, beat me on this one. I hope you get a blue badge for that later. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> so I woke up three days later from a drug-induced coma, and this is the romantic part of the story. I remember feeling exhausted, and and I couldn't open my eyes. It, they, it was just too much effort. I could hear people around me. And I guess because of the drugs, everyone, and in it, whenever anyone said anything once, it would echo. I could hear it three or four times. And I, and I heard Becky, who was my girlfriend at the time, out on the right-hand side of my head. And I had this oxygen mask on, and I started gagging on this feeding tube. So she was getting medics, and they pulled it off, they pulled the tube out. And I couldn't really open my eyes. I could just see the blurriness from the, the ceiling lights. And I actually proposed to her in like 15 to 20 seconds of consciousness. And we, we, she's trying to, I couldn't even speak. That's not a good idea at the best of times. <laughs> no, she said, she said, look, I don't care about the morphine. You're stuck now. You've, you've done it. We're, we're doing it. But I, it was like 15, 20 seconds I managed to stay awake for and then just pass back out. And then they, they must have reduced the medication to bring me more back into the real world the next day. And I spent a week in intensive care. And I still don't know whether this was luck or they did this by design but 
Every day they seemed to wean me off the medication just enough for me to understand what was going on. So it wasn't like I woke up cold turkey and was like, I've lost three limbs and my whole world's ended. It was like the first day I remember, oh, I thought I'd lost my feet and some fingers. Mm -hmm. Okay, the next day I understood actually you lost a bit more than that. The next day actually is a bit more than that. And then I remember the last day in intensive care, I, I brought my right arm out from under the bed sheet to scratch my face. And I've been doing that the whole week. Like if I had an itch, I was relieving it. Did you um, get that phantom limb syndrome where you actually feel they're still there? Yeah. Yeah. But um, because of the, the medication, I was hallucinating a lot. So like in IT, I remember like Will Smith came to visit me. He didn't. Like three of them came from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air days. And some guy was driving a forklift truck around my room and I had an eight foot bottle of ketchup in the corner. I was just having these crazy hallucinations. It's very specific. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. But when I pulled my arm out, I started like giggling. And the nurse was like, what are you laughing at? I'm like, oh, I hallucinate again. It looks like my arm's falling off. And she just looked at me as if to say, how am I supposed to tell him? Like he's had this whole week coming to terms of this. And now he's now he knows the, the full severity of it. But she didn't say anything. I just knew. And I'm like, okay, right. Now I know. It's both legs above the knee. My right arm above the elbow. And after that week, they then moved me upstairs to the Barnes and Plastics ward. And then further reduced my medication. I was more and more compass mentis in the real world. Trying to, uh, you know, I definitely hadn't accepted it at that time, but I, I understood it. And then almost instantly started to create some sort of plan about what I was going to do. You know, and I was 24 years old. I'd gone from being 16 stone, six foot two, physically close to the peak of my life to, I think I was just under nine stone in weight, obviously because of the limb loss, but also the infections I was fighting off. I was, I think without any prosthetics, I'm like four foot two or something like that. And I knew my career was over and everything, my, my life was done, like in a heartbeat. And all I could do was lie in a hospital with tubes in my nose, you know, watching DVDs going in for cleanup operations, trying to figure out what I was going to do in my life at 24 years old. Because that's all I wanted to do. I didn't have a plan after the Marines. I thought I was going to be there for 20 plus years doing this job. And all of a sudden it's changed. So, I mean, my career wasn't my, my focus. Just recovering my life was my focus. So I started trying to figure out how I was going to get through this. And three and a half weeks into it, you know, and I, I met a lot of people that were looking after me. People are always in and out my room, feeding me, changing me, asking if I'm all right, doing checks and everything. And this guy knocked on the door. I didn't recognise him, you know, but I invited him in. And it wasn't came, Will Smith, was it? <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, and he came in and he's like, my name, I don't remember his name. I remember he looked like Colonel Sanders from KFC. And uh, he introduced himself as the UK's leading medical professional in the field of amputations. So this is like January 2008. For 33 years back then, he had been an amputation specialist. So anything he didn't know wasn't worth knowing. Mm -hmm. And he came in and, and very non-emotionally explained to me that I was going to spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair because he'd never met anybody missing one leg above the knee. It's very different above the knee to below the knee. He'd never met anybody with one leg above the knee that had any success being a full-time prosthetic user. Let alone both. And my dominant arm. Yeah. So he's like, you need to start mentally preparing yourself. And then he turned around and walked. How many people are there in the world? I know we talked about this last night in regard to driving, but do you know how many people are in the world who've kind of had this and survived as such? It must be an extremely low... It is a low amount. I was the first in the UK from Afghanistan, mm -hmm. um, which made it all the more harder because no one had a, had a clear path, no plan. a yep. set routine of what to do with me. But he told me that and, you know, I, I just tanked then. I'm, you, I'm stuck in a hospital bed. I can't go 
walking in nature and gathering my thoughts. I'm just stuck in this hot room, staring at the same four walls, ruminating on what this guy's told me. Just like, how, how has this happened? You know, going through the perfectly normal stage of why me? This isn't fair. I hate my life. This is bullshit. You know, anger, frustration, depression, and all that kind of stuff. And then like six days later, I get another knock on the door. And again, it's a guy I don't recognize, but I'm, I'm starting to feel a little bit better at this point. And I invite this guy in and he came walking in on a set of prosthetic legs. He was a double above the amputee who had been blown up in Iraq in 2005. He was a sergeant in the British Army. And I didn't know he was coming. And he just he walked in my room. He'd heard about me, sat down. He told me his entire story. He took his legs off, put them back on, told me about the rehab process, told me how the prosthetics worked, the kind of thing I could expect when I left hospital and went into rehab. He managed my expectations, you know, and said, look, this is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. I know you're a Marine. I know you're fit. I know you've got the mindset, but you need to drop all that and know that this is going to be hard. Don't go in there arrogant thinking, I'm just going to smash this. You need to be a humble with this and, and take it one day at a time. Thing is, how helpful was that as well, hearing those words and getting that, that sense of realism, but then probably realising that you're sort of not the only one? Well, it, it just pulled me back to life because, you know, I, I saw someone physically with two legs above the knee that was out there walking. So I just knew, like, well, this guy's done it. All I really have to do to a degree is copy what he did physically and to a degree mentally, and I should get similar results. So I, I still had a lot of healing to do. So I'm like, right, perfect. So I get a laptop in my room and I start doing research on amputees, amputations, prosthetics and all that kind of stuff. And I was looking for another triple amputee who was a success story. I still knew nothing about this new life, but I knew in my mind, in my imagination, the kind of things I wanted to do. And I found a guy um, called Cameron Clapp in America who had been hit by a train when he was 15 in 2002. Cameron was, he was living in California and, you know, the stuff that he was doing, what 99% of the world I just think is, is quite basic. I knew it wasn't, and it was phenomenal. Like, just walking down the street without a stick, without, you know, living without a wheelchair, driving, travelling without carers, just living, like, a normal life. And he made it look easy. And so I started, like, watching his YouTube channel and his social media and going there on his website and trying to find information on him. So that when I got out of hospital, which I did after six weeks... And I started rehab, I had motivation and I had something that I could look at every day and go, this guy's done it, so it's possible. Because, you know, they all had the best intentions in the world, my rehab team, but they were trying to manage my expectations and saying, you know, you're not going to be able to walk down a set of stairs, Mark. You'd have to always take the lift. And then I'm like, well, this guy's doing it. And he's not even holding the handrail. Do you know what I mean? Cameron's exceptional. Like 99% of people can't do what he can do. I can't even do it. He's an exceptional example. I would show them the videos and they're like, oh, okay, well, we'll, we'll try it. And uh, we just started trying to, they had no set path anyway. So that was, I think, looking back, a bit of an advantage. But we started thinking outside the box. Like, what can I do? Don't tell me what I can't do. Let's look at these people that are doing well and figure out what we can do. And so we started developing a, a rehab plan and I, I started setting goals from the day that I got to rehab. And uh, I, I knew that if I wanted to, take back control of my life I had to meet Cameron I had to go physically meet him spend time with him get into his head into his mindset learn his story ask him you know how do you step off a curb how do you get up off the floor how do you put your legs on in the morning what's your technique and the way you do things 
And so the short version of this is Jan, uh, sorry, June 2009, 9th of June 2009. I went AWOL from the military. I, I had asked for permission to go and train with this guy and, and I was denied. And I spent a good three or four weeks with Becky, like waking up at three in the morning, angry and, and stressed and like, what do I do? Confused, like, should I go? Shouldn't I go? I'm going to get in trouble if I go. But I know long term, it's the best thing for me. Why wouldn't they let you go? Just because I, what they said was, this is your rehab facility. This is what you got to use. I'm like, I understand that. I'm grateful for that. But this guy is leaps and bounds ahead of anything. Yeah. And what we're doing is we're struggling with the things that he's already overcome and his team have already figured out. So why don't I just go there, take six years of their experience and their failures and their successes and condense it. Learn. And then I can come back and I can tell you this stuff and we can make other people rehab quicker. But, you know, for whatever reason, they were saying no continually. And in the end, I just, after agonizing for a couple of weeks, I just got on a plane, went over to Oklahoma, 9th of June, 2009, met Cameron, met his team, never used a wheelchair again. And, you know, this was within the first 18 months of rehab after the expert in the UK telling me I had zero chance. 9th of June, 2009 was the last time I used a wheelchair because of what they, they taught me and they took me under their wing and, I, and I'm glossing over it, but it was fucking hard. Yeah. It was three weeks of murder every day, blisters, sore back, bruises, wanting to like, just like Royal Marine training, wanting to quit, having to slip on the legs in agony every morning and just walk around bruised all day with my back feeling like it's going to break, falling over, smashing my head off pavements, trying to figure out how to, to navigate obstacles, covered in sweat all the time because of the energy it takes to get around. Zero yeah. wheelchairs, zero helpers, just like a, a baptism by fire. And you were saying yesterday, your energy expenditure is three to 500% greater More. than because of the how difficult it is, the amount of effort it takes, obviously, for you to do yeah. what people consider to be normal movement. Yeah, like I said just now, there's a difference between above knee and below knee. The more joints you have in any of your limbs, the the less effort it is. So all my walking is driven by my glutes, my hips, my lower back. Whereas if I had knees, I would be able to use my knees to, to drive and push as well. So I don't have any of that. And it's all from my core, effectively. So it takes a lot of energy to just to get around and, and live a normal day. And this, just the refusal to be defeated is just like mind-blowing to me because obviously you pulled up at the house yesterday and I thought you'd have like a sort of an adapted car and you don't. And I was mm -hmm. like, I was blown away when you sort of didn't have an adapted car because mm -hmm. basically you sort of didn't want one because you've got a way of driving and utilising your legs and you've got these amazing Bluetooth chargeable legs I found yeah. out last night. Well, one of the things that... Uh, Cameron's team said to me, one of the, the guy that uh, does all the programming in the legs and the setting them up and does all the techie stuff, he said, look, Mark, the world is not going to adapt to you. Eight billion people and however many countries are not going to adapt the world to you. You need to adapt to the world. And you need to figure ways out to use this, what is incredible technology, to its max, put the hard work in, figure stuff out, and then go and live the rest of your life. And that, and that was the mindset from there on. And, and I knew... All I really had to do was take, and take that mindset I had in Royal Marine training as a 17-year-old and apply it to my rehab, and, and that's what I did. And I made it about more than me as well. You know, I made it about the Royal Marines and that I was representing them yeah. and their, their history and their standards and their values and their ethos. You know, I represented it when I was in a uniform. Now I'm representing it as a guy recovering from a traumatic injury. And that, when, when you take it, you know, take your ego out of it. You're like, this isn't about me. This is about something bigger. 
your motivation increases. Do you know what I mean? Because you're like, oh, I need to get up. I need to uphold the standards. I need to live to that standard and keep pushing. Keep Is this pushing. what got you out of bed in the morning? Yeah. Is this the, yeah, the driving factor? And having goals set. You know, I set my goal that when my unit came back and we had the medals parade, that I was going to walk to it and not get in a wheelchair. Because everyone expected me to be in a wheelchair. And, I, you know, it wasn't pretty. The walking was terrible and I had a crutch. But I trained myself enough. And this was in the space of five and a half, maybe six months, I think, to, to walk the distance to the parade ground and get my medal stood shoulder to shoulder with the guys I fought with rather than get pushed on in a wheelchair and have people, I thought, feeling sorry for me. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And when I set that goal, every morning you get up and you don't want to do anything and your back hurts and you've got blisters and you're sore and tired. When you think, well, hang on, I've, I've set this goal and this is the date it's happening, so I need to push on. Even if I just get one more step out today and improve by 1%, I'm still getting closer to my goal. And that's what motivated me every morning to get up because I really didn't want it most of the time. Just wanted to lay in bed and get in a wheelchair and have an easy day. Yeah, I can. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that's what I'd be doing. Mm. I, you know, it's. I just think that you know, the it's back to that. You know, what would ninety nine point nine nine percent of people do exactly. or want to do? Exactly. But yeah, but yeah, you're the zero point one. Yeah, um, yeah and that's why you were training at six o'clock this morning, and I wasn't. <laughs> um, yeah, basically. But I'm just, I'm just blown away. I mean, I'm and going back to the uh, the, the leg things. This, this again, technology fascinated me. Was it Cameron that showed you? He was the guy that was using these particular yeah. legs, basically. So just tell us a bit about those and about the app because I found this like just just blew my mind. This did. So the, these ones now that I have, they have Bluetooth technology. They have CPUs. There's sensors in the toes and in the heels. So they're, they're sending some ridiculous number of signals per second from the toe and the heel back to the sensor in the back of the knee. So it, they know right now there's no weight going through my feet. There's a certain angle I'm sat at, so they know I'm sat down. So they'll go into like a energy saving mode. Mm-hmm. But I've got an app on my phone that connects via Bluetooth and that I've got six modes I can set and I've, I've got driving, gym, cycling. I think one's locked. So the piston in the back locks so I can maybe help carry a table or something and not risk falling. Um, it's got a step counter in it. I charge them up once a week uh, to keep all that flowing. And it, uh, That's weekly. I was going to say, how long do they last? I was assuming you were charging them like 14 times a day. <laughs> the older ones, every 24 hours, every night you would charge them. But they, when they upgraded them, they put a new, I think it was like some sort of lithium battery in there and you get like six to seven days out of them. So normally every Sunday night I'll, I'll put them on charge with my phone and my laptop and my toothbrush and all that stuff and just get them ready for the week. So yeah, and, and basically Mark let me control his legs last night, so I was kind of <laughs> got, got, got his phone. It was like the sense of power was unbelievable, thinking, oh, what can I make him do? Um, <laughs> it's not quite like that, to be fair, but it did. I did think we should get some for some of our team because I can just go, right, Program. work mode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, off you go, yeah. Cancel sleep mode. Yeah. Um, yeah, mode. and just, yeah, hustle, yeah, hustle mode, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, yeah, actually get some productivity out of them for a change. Um, but, uh, I, 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 and again, like you said, you know, that, how important is it to have that, the sense of humour and the cheerfulness mm. in the face of adversity? Because if it wasn't for all those values that were again were instilled in you sort of years ago, I know that that's again what led to the accident. But it's a it's a, a, a bizarre sense of irony then that all those kind of things that legends, the Marines and whatever, have come back and been no doubt a tremendous yeah, an asset. help at the end asset in terms yeah. of, um, of 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 overcoming this. I've been absolutely blown away by sort of spending time with you and just sort of seeing how you just do all this stuff 
normally and and how you adapt. Like it's it's just ridiculously um, uh, inspirational. Thank you. Um, I mean, and what what's the sort of the what's the future hold now? So um, you were saying about again, you've got another um, book coming out, and yeah, I've got another book hopefully coming out soon. We are making a movie about my story. Um, Who's playing? Is it Tom Hardy? Who's playing you? No, I I'll wish. do it. Um, I have to find someone because I was 24, so I have to find someone like a young up and coming actor. Yeah, yeah the young Tom Hardy. Yeah, CGI him. Um, Would you speak to Tom and ask if I can play him in the movie about him? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so where did that come in with the grappling and Tom? Because we're joking about Tom Hardy, but where did that come in? Because obviously you've been. Subsequently, as well, doing the grappling and fighting, and then um, yeah, I would I was going to say come across Tom, but that sounds wrong. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, you know what I meant. Um, and and obviously, uh, no doubt you've massively inspired him. I know he's always been very supportive and stuff that mm. you do. And, and again, tell us about Reorg as well. So me, Tom, and another gentleman called Trent are trustees of a, a charity called Reorg, and it was started by uh, former Royal Marines physical training instructor uh, Sam Sheriff while he was serving. And he was basically using his passion, which was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, to rehabilitate Royal Marines, because he was a PTI and a rehab instructor. So he was rehabilitating guys with physical and psychological injuries. And I met him in the sergeant's mess at Royal Marines headquarters one day, and he invited me down to train. Now, prior to my injuries, when I was growing up, I was a competitive kickboxer, a boxer for the Marines, and competed at Muay Thai. So I was, martial arts was a big part of my life. So I'm like, okay, I'll give this a go. Not having any idea what Brazilian jiu-jitsu was and uh, I didn't realize it was a, a grappling thing or a ground-based thing and we did an hour's training and I loved it you know it gave me back something in my life that I thought I'd lost like that adrenaline fueled alpha male let's have a scrap kind of feeling and I just I fell in love with it and the adaptability of it how he could take a move what 90% of able-bodied people would do and adapt it specifically for me and I thought okay I can I can arrow my stripes here it's not going to be about sympathy it's not going to be about pity I have to really work hard here and figure this out, like physically and mentally, to be able to progress. And, you know, that was about four years ago we started training. COVID was a, a real, you know, put like two years of, of, of a stall on it where I couldn't really train. And um, that's, that's where I met Tom. I don't even remember the story of how Sam and Tom met, but when Sam left the Marines, and this took a lot of time actually, he was going to just hand real go over to another PTI and... I said to him, and a lot of the lads said, you can't do that, mate. This is, what you're doing is phenomenal. And if you give it to someone else, no one will have the passion and drive and the vision that you've got to take it to where it can go. So after a, like about eight months of just going at him, he decided that he was going to transition out of the military and then become the, the chief exec of it. And it's just gone from strength to strength from there. It's now, it then went from just the Royal Marines to the Tri-Service, then to the emergency services, then from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to functional fitness, we're now moving out into, um, I don't know what you call it, like the petrol head community, bikers and, and car enthusiasts, open water swimming, any anywhere really where you can create an empowering community where people share a passion and who have been through some sort of difficult situation can come together, share their passion and improve their lives as a result. So it's just, I, I feel very privileged to be a, a part of this journey and to be in at the beginning and just see the phenomenal growth like i said to you last night next month we're at the arnold schwarzenegger fitness festival and i'm speaking there and i'm going to be in a green room hopefully with like arnie van damme still all these people that we talked about that yeah. i grew up idolizing hopefully they're going to be sat in a room with them sharing a stage with them 
you know, because I'm a trustee of Reorg. And it's it's nuts, the opportunities and the experiences that have come off the back of it. And this is one of the things that people say, they're like, you know, if you could go back in time, would you have not gone on that patrol? Would you have changed things differently? I honestly don't think I would have. Because my life now, I, I believe, is better and more fulfilling than it ever would have been had this not happened. It's incredible. And again, because I'd have said the same, but having spent time with you, I can completely understand mm. that now. So that doesn't surprise me saying that, having known about your mindset and, and, and whatever as well. And I, I could talk to you for hours, but I've got to ask you, because you mentioned the open water swimming. Um, didn't you last year sort of swim the channel? No, no, well? I didn't. No, no, no. no. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's an absolute common mistake. Um, so last year, in, in between the lockdowns, my coach, Ben, who's also a former Royal Marine, we were, it was one of those periods where you're allowed out for a bit of exercise in the day or something. Yeah, like an hour a day for right. a walk. Yeah. And he, he's always like looking out for me and making sure I'm all right. And he, he wanted to take me running and I detest running. Like even when I had legs, I just hated it. But I have, have you got a running mode on the legs? There's not, there is no, a, so I've got running prosthetics, different legs. Oh, okay. And so I didn't run for about three and a half years, but I, I dusted them off and we said, you know, we, we had started when Reorg had just formed. We had started a bit of fundraising where I got my youngest daughter, Evelyn, to shave my beard off on a Facebook live stream to raise a thousand pounds because I wanted to get eyeballs on the website. And uh, it's funny, you said about Robocop earlier. She Robocoped me, like cut all my hair off from the, from the halfway point to the front, like when Robocop takes his helmet off. And she's really sassy and she's cute and people loved it. And we did like 1,500 pounds in... 24 hours. So Ben's like, let's let's get you running again and we'll do a, a like a 5K run, just me and you out in the open. Anyway, the first training session we had, I got about two and a half, 2K into it and I was tired and lacking concentration. And I hit the deck and we were filming it. I took a big chunk out of the concrete. You know, I crushed my bits and I, as I hit the deck and the video went viral. I think it, last time I checked, there was like 43 million views. And the BBC got on board and they're like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? What are you running for? What's Reorg? And it, I think they asked me to do an interview on a Saturday morning. And by the time I'd walked from my office in my garage back to my front room, I had 1,200 just given email notifications with donations and 60 odd grand in the bank. And I'm like, holy crap. And then they went, do you want to come back on Sunday and do another interview? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Thinking no one's going to really watch it at seven o'clock in the morning on Sunday. They'll all be in bed. Same thing happened again. So we're like 120 odd grand in. And I said, when I get to 5,000 pounds, I'll run 5,000 meters and do the 5K, thinking I'm going to get like six weeks. I had two training sessions and then I do the event and it was awful. But Ben then kept on convincing me. He said, now let's do a one kilometer open water sea swim. I'm like, right, okay, let's do that then. I've never swam in the sea probably since I was 13 or 14 years old. But we did that, got to about a quarter of a mil. Then he's like, this is about the time we started working with the emergency services. So I'm like, let's do a 99.9 mile, 999 bike ride. So I dusted off my handbike and we did this 24 hour, I think it took 16 hours, but we were up for like 26 hours. 100 mile bike ride from North Devon back to Plymouth on the hoe. And then we did a 24 hour jujitsu event in December last year. And the, to the total was at like 608 grand, I think at the minute. And I'm, I'm just keeping pushing it now until we get to a million. So we've got another swim coming up on the 2nd of October. Uh, people all around the country and the world now are doing their own fundraisers and feeding into that page to try and get up to the mill. So it was completely unplanned. There's, I'd left my job, no plan, no idea what I was going to do. And this crazy 
series of events came about and it was phenomenal, like extremely fulfilling to be able to do that and to, you know, on a selfish level to challenge myself, mm -hmm. to train and see if I can do these things. But then on a selfless level to, to raise money for this brand new charity that had only just, I think three months prior officially registered as a charity to give it a good head start, you know, and it's just, it's been phenomenal. Like it's been a whirlwind of just constantly, constant memorable experiences that I'm massively grateful for. Is there anything you can't do? Cook. <laughs> oh yeah, I apart from cook. that. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. uh, other people can do that and that's fine. Um, Mark, it's just been an absolute um, inspiration and pleasure just having you here and listening to you and again, spending time with you as well. It's been um, been absolutely fantastic. And um, you're a fantastic friend to obviously me and Grenade. And if there's anything we can do for you, you know, we're, we're there. So Thank let's you. sit and figure out how we can help you get close to this uh, to this million um, as well. And um, you are very welcome back here anytime. Thank so, you, mate. you know, from, from everyone, I think probably one of my favorite guests Thank you. out of the three that we've had on. And thank you, mate, <laughs> for, for this, this opportunity and, and the platform and, you know, to spread this message, tell this story and, you know, reach more people. Well, and again, I am, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to stop talking about the paper cut now. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm, I'm never going to moan about getting injured ever again. So I've promised myself this morning, I was trying, I thought, right, I'm not going to moan about that. I won't moan about that. Uh, and again, you know, uh, I'm, I generally as well, I don't need much because I'm, I'm a fairly motivated person, but mm -hmm. you've taken me to the next level, which is quite rare as well. So thank you. Thank you. Well, what can we say? Uh, that was the incredible Mark Ormrod uh, with me, Alan Barrett on Pull the Pin. And if you like that content, then please make sure you like, subscribe and share. We'll put a link as well to... Uh, the real charity and Mark's fundraising efforts. So please give anything you can. And we will be back soon with more business brand and banter. Make sure you subscribe. Thank you.